is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. It is the first day of the commercial barramundi season, but not everyone is out fishing. In fact, there's a few boats parked up in Darwin. We'll talk about this in just a moment. We've got some happy cattle producers on the country hour today as the rain continues to tumble down in central Australia. And you'll also today get a sneak peek and a new invention that's been built to make processing wild buffalo safer. It's when a lot of people do get injured handling buffalo and um, we hope to take this away by with this implement 100%. This is all coming up on today's Country Hour. I hope you can stick around. And there is a flood watch in place this afternoon for central inland parts and the upper Victoria district. I will be sharing that with you in just a moment. The commercial barramundi season starts today in the Northern Territory with fishing boats heading to various locations around the coast. But for the first time, there will be no fishing allowed along a stretch that includes the Mini Mini System and Merganella Coast. So uh, this is all north of the East Alligator River. And according to the NTC Food Council, up to 23% of the NT's yearly barramundi and king threadfin catch comes out of this region but it is closed. Catherine Winchester is the Chief Executive of the NT Seafood Council. Catherine, can you explain to us what's happened in terms of these closures? Yeah, so the, this year, today's day one of the Barramundi um, fishing season and the boats have headed off and, and, yeah, they're not headed to the mini, mini Merganella area this year because last year um, as industry was applying for section 19s because the northern land council advised going forward um, for blue mud bay for that intertidal zone from um, the high water mark to the low water mark um, adjacent to aboriginal land commercial operators need to have in place a section 19 permit so um, industry um, put the applications in for section 19 by the end of september to help um, the Northern Land Council figure out where they would need to consult um, for those Section 19s. And as part of that process, when um, those applicants re- received um, news back from the Northern Land Council that the application had been received, all the bits and pieces of information that were required were submitted, or if there was bits and pieces missing, they required some further information. But as part of that communication, they let the industry know that the mini, mini Merganella area would be closed effective of the 1st of January, which um, for both the mud crab fishery and the barramundi fishery um, is a really important area. Um, so we, we did actually ask for a briefing with the Northern Land Council and they came along and met um, with industry um, uh, in late November, or I think it was late November last year. Mm-hmm. And we had some really good discussions so that the fishermen could talk directly with their land council and understand um, why they couldn't go fishing on the 1st of January. And can you share that with our audience? What is the why? The why is because the traditional owners of that area have requested um, there not be access to the fishing grounds um, by recreational or commercial fishers, um, and that's effective of the 1st of January. So uh, in order to... um, The industry wants... It's a really important area for commercial fishing. It's um, anywhere between... Uh, like 10 and 23% of the the barramundi and king threadfin catch for that fishery. So it's 
between 50 and 140 tonnes in any year that um, the fish comes out of that region. And for crab fishery, it's around 10%. So um, the industry people understand that that's the decision that traditional owners have made to close those grounds. Um, but also as part of the conversations of transitioning through to the Section 19 permits, one of the common things that we're always focusing on is how do we keep the industry working as we work through the new system and to transition through to a Section 19 permit, how do we not disrupt industry as much as possible or minimise that disruption so that people stay in the industry, markets continue and if there is any changes that it's a smooth change and the industry stays strong and for those communities that want um, commercial fishing um, adjacent uh, to their land and, and in their waters, um, that the fishery is really viable and that there's, there's jobs and opportunities there. So um, the decision to close those waters is a, is a disruption to both of those fisheries because it has such a significant impact on their ability to catch fish and it means um, either fishers have to go fish on top of other fishing grounds, um, but because that area is so close to Darwin, we tend to see um, specific operators target that area. So they've got smaller boats, it's close to Darwin, so they're really geared up for that area specifically. And we're trying to um, have conversations and the Northern Land Council and the Northern Territory Government are working together to see if they can have some conversations as soon as possible with those traditional owners to see if there's any wriggle room um, and if we can reach an agreement to allow um, those operators that specifically operate in that area if they can continue to do so as we work out the longer term arrangements and what it looks like. Um, because in terms of proximity to Darwin, that's quite a long stretch of coastline out of action now, isn't it? You've got Fink, Chambers and now Mini Mini Merganella. Uh, that's not available to commercial fishermen. Yeah, it's so all the, you know, for the barramundi fishery, um, people would come in more regularly from those areas. It's the fresh, the fresh, fresh product on ice that we would see from the mini, mini Merganella. When the fishery experienced the closures all the way from Fog Bay, Chambers Bay and Fink Bay uh, had a massive impact on their ability to bring in fresh fish to Darwin. So to lose the mini, mini Merganella area almost wipes out the fresh fish um, to Darwin um, sort of market. Right, yeah, yeah. Has, so in terms yeah. of fresh barramundi coming into Darwin that hasn't been snap frozen, do we see much of that anymore? Um, operators uh, sometimes do both, um, so it just depends on where their markets are and what people are looking for, but those smaller boats um, tend to do shorter trips coming back into the market more regularly, so they would still bring in um, the fresh on ice um, barramundi, which there's really good markets for. So it sounds like negotiations are still happening and industry is hopeful maybe of it not being a, a permanent closure. Well, we're hoping that um, conversations can happen as soon as possible. We had hoped that they would have occurred by now um, before the start of the season uh, for the Barramundi season. But we also recognise that, you know, with the wet season and access and getting the right people um, together to have that discussion is really important. Um, so we're hoping that conversation can happen as soon as possible um, so that people know what they can do. And it, you know, if there's any hope at all for an interim arrangement to um, not lose that area and to come up with some sort of agreement as further conversations continue on what does it look like going forward, that's what we're really hoping for. Um, to lose such a significant um, amount of fishing grounds for the fishery um, is going to have a devastating impact. And the other part of this is that 
lost the, the Section 19 permits are to the low watermark, industry is being really respectful and staying out of the whole region because they know that, you know, people see the boats and whether you're beyond the low water mark or within those waters, um, if, if the traditional owners have asked for no fishing there, they know that causes stress. So they're opting to not just go and fish on the low water mark. So um, all the fish might not necessarily come from those waters, um, from the high water mark to the low water mark, but they're staying out of that that area at the moment out of respect and really trying to broker a, um, a long-term solution that works for everyone going forward. So um, industry has been just fantastic in the goodwill that they're showing and respecting these decisions, but the impacts on those businesses are tremendous. For some operators, that is the only area that they operate. They are currently not earning any income. Their boats have not headed out. Um, they are patiently waiting and hoping that some solutions can be brokered so that they can go out there while the longer-term um, discussions happen. So, Okay, so some barramundi licensee holders are not fishing today because correct. they haven't got access to these areas. Yeah. They, and they, they, boats, ca they can't go elsewhere? Not really, because their boats are um, uh, smaller boats. They're set up for that particular region. And um, the areas sort of as you move further um, south from Fog Bay at this time of the year, it's really windy and very dangerous to be um, fishing along that part of the territory. And these particular operators' boats are set up for those um, smaller, more frequent trips in that mini, mini Murganella area. Um, using the infrastructure in that area to get the product back to market more frequently. They're, they're just not geared up to, to then, um, they would need to travel um, sort of into Arnhem Land uh, and into the Gulf of Carpentaria and those boats are just are not set up for, for that kind of operation. So unfortunately some business operators don't have any choice. It's their only area that they fish. So will there be less wild caught barramundi this year in the Northern Territory? Well, hopefully discussions can happen as soon as possible um, and uh, the area, you know, fingers and toes across that the end area can be reopened. If it's not reopened, we're, we're definitely going to lose um, operators and then depending on how good the rainfall's been and how the captures are going, how productive those other areas are. So um, it's always a little bit of a guessing game as to, to what the total catch will be for a season. We've seen it fluctuate over the year. The, the rain is definitely um, a big factor for that. But the fact that you wouldn't have experienced operators in the fishery um, taking, as we know, like in a good year, anywhere up to 140 tonnes of barramundi and king threadfin from that area, um, that, that gap will be noticed for sure. Thank you for spending time on the Country Hour today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Matt. G'day, I'm Bill Passy. I'm a fisherman. I have been for 54 years. I've loved every minute of it, and uh, welcome to the country out. Yeah, thanks to Catherine Winchester from the Territory Seafood Council. And here at the Country Hour, we have approached the Northern Land Council for comment. Meanwhile, on the Queensland side of the Gulf of Carpentaria, hopes are high for a good barramundi season. Barra Dave Donald has spent 30 years running fishing charters in the Gulf of Carpentaria and along the Cape Country near Weeper and says conditions should be great for all fishos. Certainly last year was one of the best wet seasons I've seen on the Cape in terms of 
longevity, particularly in the Weeper area. No, uh, uh, the Cape uh, wet season last year was a bit patchy, but in our area here we had probably the best wet season uh, for, for barra breeding that I've had since I've, and I've lived in Weeper for over 25 years. So, uh, But this season has probably even eclipsed that at the moment. Um, we've had... Um, we look like having the wettest July, uh, wettest January on record uh, for some years. Um, the way the rain's going at the moment. So, uh, what that means is virtually that all the rivers and lagoons and everything are flowing, and all the barras that are maybe sometimes get trapped in the freshwaters are all out there breeding. That the conditions have been absolutely perfect. Um, so. Certainly, as far as juveniles, I would expect big amounts of juveniles this year. The the, the probably the, the thing to remember is that um, those juveniles won't actually become catchable fish uh, or or legal length fish for probably two to three years. So um, we you know we'll see lots of small fish, and probably we'll we'll see lots of slightly larger fish, one-year-old fish from, from last year as well. So I would say that um, the next couple of years, regardless of what the wet seasons are like, are going to be bumper years here for Barra up this way, yeah. And we often talk about wet seasons and its impact on grazing and on the land, but many of us can often forget that it actually also has an impact on the fishing industry. So I suppose, is it just important to keep in mind when we have really strong rains, this can mean a a beautiful couple of seasons ahead for all the fishermen, especially in the north? Yeah, definitely. Um, The rain is a huge um, influence on how good the fishing is if if we get good rains you know that that's a, a great bonus because all the nutrients wash out to sea. all the fish can get as well as the fish getting out all the nutrients come out and uh really um uh promote the biomass in the uh in the offshore waters and you probably find that the prawn um season which starts uh on the first of april in the Gulf um, will will be another bumper one. Last year, I think um, it was it was a three month season with a quota, and the quota was filled in just over two months. So, I would say that that sort of thing is going to happen again this year. Every everything benefits, not just not just the barra, the whole the whole food chain right through the um, right through the marine environment benefits. That is Barra Dave Donald, who's in Weeper, speaking there to Lucy Cooper. The commercial Barra Mundi season underway for 2023. In the Northern Territory, there is a flood watch in place this afternoon. Floods can happen in a flash. That's why you need a proper emergency plan in place. Learn more about the history of flooding and flood warnings in your local area. Check your insurance. Have an emergency kit ready to go and identify an evacuation route and shelter for you and your family. Prepare, act and survive with ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Your emergency broadcaster. Yeah, there's a flood watch in place for parts of central inland and upper Victoria catchments this afternoon and areas likely to be affected include the upper Victoria River, the Tenamai Desert, the Barkley and Central Desert. Now have a listen to some of these numbers. Rainfall totals of 30 to 90 millimetres with isolated falls of 150 millimetres are possible today. 
Further rainfall totals of 30 to 70 mils with isolated totals of 120 mils are possible tomorrow across this flood watch area. The Bureau says rainfall may cause significant water level rises in rivers and creeks and prolonged overland flooding and ponding from today and roads may become impassable. Some communities and homesteads may become isolators. Please check road conditions before travelling. So that's the flood watch that is in place. We'll be speaking to the Weather Bureau at five past one. If you have a question for the Bureau, please do send it through on the text 0487 There's some seriously good rain moving through the Tenamai, Central Australia. Barclays getting a good drop as well. You'll be hearing from some very happy cattle producers next. It is 10 to 1 here on the Country Hour. As I mentioned, there's a flood watch in place this afternoon. Areas likely to be affected include the Upper Victoria River, Tenamai Desert, Barkley, Central Desert. You look at the radars this afternoon and there's a fair bit of moisture getting around. And by golly, it's putting some smiles on the dials of Territory cattle producers. I'm not aware of anyone complaining as of yet. They're pretty happy. There's some good falls being recorded including at Emaru Station, which is on the sand over to the northeast of Alice Springs. Stuart Weir is there. He says they got 48 millimetres in the gauge this morning and even more the night before. Uh, well, we had 84 mil the night before, and that was really heavy. That that was um, in a few hours, whereas last night it was a, it was a bit, bit uh, steadier, but no, it's certainly wet, like five inches, and 48 hours is a fair rain for this country. So how is the country looking at the moment then? Uh, really good, like really good. It's green, it's, it's probably as good as you'll get it, I think, yeah, and with this extra rain we've just had, it'll be really good. Plenty of puddles around, I imagine. Yes, there is. Um, east of here, yesterday, some of that country had had over 200 mils, so it was really wet to the, to, to the east of here and southeast of here. Any flooding that you've heard of or that you're aware of? Oh, yeah, well, I mean, our rivers in the middle, the Bundy River and the Oratipa River, are running really big floods, but they're not going to affect anyone. It's just a lot of fencing to do when it all drops a bit. I can't imagine those rivers would flood very often. Uh, well, in the season, they, 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 they run a bit, yeah, depending on what happens in the catchment. But, yeah, all that water ends up into the Sandover River eventually. So, yeah, there'll be a pretty good flood down the, down the other end of the Sandover. And so this recent rain, where does that take your wet season so far, Stuart? I think we've had about 420 mil here at Amaru since just before Christmas, which is you know, well over the average, so it's going to be a, an exceptional year, I think. And have you had a, been able to look over the country, um, get a view from across the property? Yeah, we've, we've been doing a lot of flying when we can just to keep an eye on everything, because you can't drive, it's just, just too wet, so... Uh, we flew yesterday and, yeah, there was a lot, a lot of water uh, out on Berry Downs and Arapunya and Dnieper, yeah, so um, it's had a lot more rain there than here in the last few days. You know, they're forecasting a bit more today and tomorrow, so, yeah, I think we're going to have a really, really good season. What does this mean for you then um, for the year ahead? Oh, I think I think it, it we'll be able to, um, you know, we, we trade a few cattle, so long as the, we can buy cattle at the right price, we'll, um, yeah, put a buy some steers and load up some of this uh, better country. We've had a lot of country here empty for the last little while just um, to give it a bit of a break. Uh, so, 
yeah, all our properties have had a have had a really good rain, so I think it's just going to be a, one of those years where you can shuffle stuff around to where you want it and um, sell your fat cattle and hang on to the rest. So I think it'll be it'll be a really good year. Yeah, after a few tough years, what what does it mean to have some rainfall like this? Well, it gives the country a chance to to get back on, you know, to really regenerate. Um, Arapunya was really dry a few years ago, so we've basically did a full re- destock there. Sorry, and um, yeah, there's only probably five or six hundred cattle out at the moment, and that country is is really responded. I mean, spilling the country certainly helps. So we'll be able to um, yeah spread our wieners out and spread all the cattle out, and um, yeah, just be be really good for the cattle and. We'll be able to hang on to to a lot of cattle that would generally send to Queensland to our places over there. So we'll be just leave them here this year. So no, it'll just just be a really good year, cattle wise and season wise. And how are you keeping busy with this wet weather? Oh, I haven't been doing too much. We haven't got too many staff here. Um, it's just Anna and I and, and one one couple. So just doing a bit of maintenance on some trucks and yeah, just uh, not doing a lot. Just getting ready to start the season. Just enjoying the sound of the rain on the tin roof. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's as good as a holiday when you're here with not many staff. It's it's a good break. That is Stuart Weir from Emaru Station. He runs Sandover Pastoral, speaking there to Max Rowley. Now, further south of Emaru is Indiana Station, which I'm told had 87 millimetres yesterday. Liz Bird from Indiana had a chat to Stuart Brash this morning and says it's turning into a great season. Well, when it was green around Christmas, it was it even hurt your eyes. Then we had it dry off a little bit for about a week. And um, mind you, this is me at the homestead where there's lots of buffalo around. And um, further east, we haven't had as much. But we've had, it's, it's isolated scuds at all sorts of places. Sometimes you think it's going to fall on a dam and then it doesn't, or it does, and you didn't know it did. So it's... Um, it's been hit and miss, but when you get further north, like over the Dulcie Ranges, up where Stewie is, yeah, they've had a lot more up there. Do you have any idea of how much rain you've had since Christmas or even since December in general? Yeah, well, I was listening in the morning this morning, in case you did actually ask. So for like September to December, we had 170-odd, so that's seven inches. Um, and um, then obviously 140 for January, that was. Um, so it's been a, another wet summer. So yeah, last summer was about 300. Looking at the the, um, the January February, that was all that I looked at. Um, I didn't look at the, the December for the 21 year. Yeah, happy cows. Definitely, yes. well, they, they were rolling in fat before, so this is going to be more calves to brand now. So that's good. Yeah, that's the problem right. with rain is you can't get out in the country to actually do any mustering. How long before you reckon you actually get on to have a look around the, the property a bit more? Is it a bit damp out there? Yeah, it is. Yeah, my husband um, will um, be flying around having a look. So he's looking at floodgates, the important things, and, and looking to see where with dams have caught water um, just to keep off the roads, as we do. But, yeah, mustering will be a little bit later. But, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how many calves are around. But, of course, it takes nine months, so there'll be... More again. Yeah, the absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the only problem with rain, and especially three good summers of rain, is the F word, which um, I know a lot of people will be yes. sort of worried about as we get into the dry parts of the year. Uh, does that prey in your mind a bit? Yes, it does. We, um, we don't tend to have a lot of cattle because um, we don't have a lot of water. So, therefore, when we have too much rain, we have too much grass. 
as far as fires go. Yeah. So we just have to manage that that risk like you have to manage every other risk. Uh, that is Liz Bird from Indiana Station speaking to Stuart Brash. That's two days in a row now on the Country Hour. We've heard from Centralians enjoying the rain but fearing the flies that may come in the coming months. It is three to one on the Country Hour. I'm joined in the studio by Dan Fitzgerald. We've just got a question from our audience, Dan, and, and I think it is directed at you because you've been our our special radioactive capsule correspondent over the last couple of days. We've got a message here that says, I missed yesterday's program. Has the radioactive tooth size been found? No, sadly, no. it has not. We will be sure to let you know when it does. <laughs> um, but, yeah, if you did miss yesterday's program, uh, there was some special equipment sent from the Commonwealth over to Western Australia, special radioactive detecting equipment that uh, WA is hoping to use to sort of speed up that search process and, and hopefully find it. <laughs> now, you're here to talk about sun. Here comes the sun. Sun Cable has put up the for sale sign. What can you tell us? Yes, yeah, so Sun Cable's administrators, they've officially started the sales process for the company. Uh, binding bids on Sun Cable are due by the end of April. Uh, but just as to who will end up owning the company, that remains to be seen. Of course, billionaires Mike Cannon-Brooks and Andrew Forrest, they've both got investments in the company, but they have different visions for its future. That's sort of what's caused the collapse of Sun Cable. Mike Cannon-Brooks, he's keen to export the power to Singapore. But Andrew Forrest, he wants to drop the whole cable part of it and focus on using the solar power to produce green energy and green ammonia. Mm-hmm. So both of those uh, two parties are potentially uh, interested buyers. Uh, the AFR is reporting that there's some other potential buyers circling out there, okay. uh, including a Canadian infrastructure giant Brookfield, uh, Macquarie's infrastructure arm, also a Spanish and a Singaporean company. Mm. So uh, few people F- kicking the tyres. Yeah, it seems like FTI Consulting uh, is handling the sale. It says it wants to complete it before the end. Of May. Okay. And what was the plan? 12,000 hectares of solar panels out near Elliot? And a 4,000 kilometre undersea uh, cable over to Singapore. Uh, so, uh, yeah, big plans as to the future and whether or not that will ever get up. Uh, that remains to be seen. We'll find out. The idea is up for sale if you're keen. Thanks very much for the update, Dan Fitzgerald. We've still got plenty to come on today's Country Hour, including a look at a new invention that is designed to help process in Buffalo and make it more safer. That's all coming up, and now it's news time on your ABC, 1 o'clock. Little darling, I feel like slowly melting. Hello, my name is Salaudi Botongoleoi. And I am from Crocodile Island Rangers, one of the women coordinators. And you are listening to the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. A reminder, if you need to duck out into the paddock for whatever reason, you can always download the podcast and listen at a time that suits you. Before 1.30, you'll get a sneak peek at a new invention that's been built to make processing wild buffalo safer. It's when a lot of people do get injured handling buffalo and um, we hope to take this away by with this implement 100%. That is Michael Swart, a veteran of the Territory's buffalo industry. 
Uh, he will show you this prototype before 1.30. Hope you can stick around for that. Ooh, and looks like Energy Resources of Australia has a new chair. I will share that information with you in just a moment. But first, let's go to the Weather Bureau. Billy Lynch is there this afternoon. And Billy, flood watch in place and uh, a few extra areas included to the list, it seems. Yeah, g'day, Matt. Um, just one extra area added, which is the Upper Victoria River. Um, and then the, the places that uh, haven't changed is the Tanami Desert, the Barkley and the Central Desert. So... It's a pretty um, significant weather pattern at the moment for central districts. We have this this trough that we were talking about yesterday. Uh, it's probably extending at the moment from Halls Creek uh, across the, the northern Tanami down into the southern Barkley. There is a weak low pressure system embedded in that over the northern Tanami as well. Uh, and lots of tropical moisture feeding into it. So... Um, when we have a look at what has fallen in the rain gauges in the last 24 hours, it's not that impressive. The upper Victoria River has about 50 mils, uh, Ali Karungbore 41, Alexandria Downs 39. Um, so that's kind of like the best falls we've had. Yeah. But we don't have a lot of rain gauges, unfortunately, between uh, you know Rabbit Flat and Ali Karung, and that was where most of the rain fell in the last 24 hours. Mm. We do sometimes look at satellite estimated rainfall, which um, you can Google and do it yourself, but um, that is indicating across that sort of Tanami, pretty close to the Tanami Road, I would say, there was around 70 to 100 millimetres widespread in the last 24 hours. Wow, because in the flood watch it talks about potential isolated falls of 150 millimetres today and potential isolated falls tomorrow of 120 millimetres. And, um, yeah, well, as you said, there's, there's not too many rain gauges in these areas, the Barkley included, and uh, on the radar it would seem parts of the Barkley got uh, a lot of rain even just this morning, yeah? Yeah, that's right. So even this morning, um, away from that main trough uh, across the northeast Barkley, there was quite a big blow-up of um, slow-moving thunderstorms. Um, so we did have a severe weather w thunderstorm warning out Sorry, earlier this morning there too. Um, it's kind of eased back a little bit at the moment, but um, just as the sun's starting to, to poke through, it's... Uh, is starting to get a little bit more active again. So we're, at the moment I'm looking at the satellite and seeing quite a lot of thunderstorm activity begin to develop in and around Tennant Creek, uh, especially to the west of Tennant Creek there. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely more potential um, tonight and tomorrow um, for these heavy falls. We'll probably see the heavy rain begin to contract out of the Tanami overnight tonight. And tomorrow, the focus of the heavy rain will be much more across the Barclay district. And looking at the top end, judging from the radar, it seems like there's a bit of thunderstorm activity getting whooped up. Yeah, I mean, there is and there isn't. You're right, there is a bit of colour on the, the, the radar, particularly across the, the western top end, but it's, it's pretty, you know, that's not really that heavy and it's kind of moving through fairly quickly. So we're not expecting a lot of rainfall with it. Um, tomorrow, though, conditions do improve for, for rainfall. So we're expecting a weak monsoon to push across the, the top end from tomorrow. That should 
result in an increase in shower and storm activity. And then this trough over central Australia, that's also pushing northwards and will push across the top end during Friday. Okay. So, so yeah, that trough combining with the monsoon should um, cause Friday to also be quite wet. Um, but that's probably as best as it's going to get um, because from Saturday onwards, in behind that trough, um, we're going to get a lot of dry air push up over the top end and it's going to have the effect of shutting down a lot of shower and storm activity and the sun is going to start to come so, out. Right, so potential dry weekend across the Territory, Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, look, some of our it, modelling really does not have a lot of rainfall at all across the top end this weekend. Right. It's pushing it all offshore and into the Gulf of Carpentaria. So. A chance to mow the lawn, check out the local creek, see a waterfall, get amongst it. Yeah, it's a good positive spin. Yeah, they're trying to find the positives. <laughs> I've got a question here for you, Billy, from Dave in Palmerston, wanting to know if Darwin is on track for its average rainfall this season. Yeah, look, on track. So to date, it's above average. Um, it hasn't passed the average. So the average wet season rainfall for Darwin is about 1,600 millimetres. Uh, we're sitting on 1,200. So, you know, if it stopped raining right now, we wouldn't meet the average. But we're looks like we're tracking quite a few hundred millimetres, about 300 millimetres above the mm. long-term average. And, um, Still got February and March and April. Plenty of time to... Exactly. Yes. Yep. Hmm. All right, then. Thanks so much, Billy. Have a good afternoon. You're welcome. Thank you. G'day, this is John Little here. I'm from Ilzajari Outstation out on the Ernest Giles and you're listening to the ABC Country Hour. It is 11 past one. I want to talk about the dairy industry with you for just a moment. I know we don't have too many dairy stories on the Northern Territory Country Hour, but I would think anyone who drinks milk and anyone in the cattle industry too would find this of interest because this is a big decision, a big announcement that's come out of New Zealand's dairy industry. One of the biggest milk companies in New Zealand has ordered farmers to stop the on-farm killing of very young male calves known as bobby calves. Fonterra, New Zealand has given dairy farmers over there until June to stop this practice. But its Australian arm says there are no plans to mandate similar requirements at this time. Kirsty Keatley has worked in the dairy industry in New Zealand and now runs a dairy farm in Victoria. She says Fonterra's decision will be impossible for most Kiwi farmers to meet. What they're saying is that they've got to have a useful life. So a useful life is, you know, reared for beef, um, slaughtered as veal or pet food. Now, you could argue, but the last two of those options doesn't sound that useful. And then, you know, moving on from that, so um, if you have to keep calves on farm for a longer period of time, obviously that creates a whole lot of um, issues. And this is one that I'm grappling with ourselves as a company. So at the moment we keep 25% of our replacements. Those are heifers. They come back into our herd. The rest of our calves, we rear a proportion of beef calves 
Some are sold as bobby calves and some are sold to backgrounders to um, other calf rearers. If farmers have to go from rearing 25% of their calves on farm to rearing 100% of their calves on farm, that takes infrastructure. So it takes, you know, the um, calf shed space and calf sheds and it takes labour. So those are things that take time, to, A, to build or, or to get. And then obviously if you're rearing those animals as a beef calf, you need additional land to be able to do that as well. Being from New Zealand yourself, do you think that there is the infrastructure possible to get this done by just a few months down the track from now? Not a hope in hell, excuse my language, but no, no, definitely not. So we're talking, you know, um, for example, I'm building calf sheds at the moment. We're building calf sheds at the moment in Tasmania. We've just accepted some quotes and we're earliest we can get those calf sheds built um, are May. So ours will be up before we start calving in August. But if I went to a builder now, I mean, I locked that in a few weeks ago. If I went to a builder now in Western Victoria and tried to get someone to build a calf shed, which I did a couple of months ago, he's booked out for a year. So there is, you know, you just wouldn't, you know what it's like in the building industry at the moment, getting materials, it's impossible and getting and getting labour. So if, if I wanted to build a new calf shed on, on any of our farms in Victoria at the moment for us to start calving in May or in spring, I wouldn't be able to do it for 12 months. So in New Zealand, it'll be exactly the same. There's a shortage of labour. The tradies are all busy, um, shortage of steel. You know, you've got to order things and everything. So um, I'm surprised that they haven't, you know, given a bit longer lead-in time. Like, say, you know, over the next two years, we're phasing out this, you know, and, and we want to bring it in sort of in two years' time. So it's going to be very tricky. So this was a decision with the intended outcome being consumer confidence in the dairy industry and improved animal welfare, but due to a lack of supply chain planning and infrastructure, by the sounds of it, it seems as though this might have negative animal be, welfare. It could be worse for the industry. And if people have high expectations, and as farmers do, farmers care for animals, you know, that's why we farm. It's We, we, we like animals, so animal welfare is number one, you know, and looking after the land and, and et cetera. But if people want, you know, everything done, you know, properly and they want these calves reared on farm, then they've got to make, a, as consumers, they've got to make a commitment Then rather than go to the supermarket and, and buy chicken for protein or buy, you know, straight Angus beef, they're going to commit to buying dairy beef in the supermarkets or at the butchers because there's going to be, you know, there could, you know, there'll be millions of animals that will have to be eaten by somebody. So that's what I'm saying. You've got to develop the market, you know. New Zealand doesn't have a big enough domestic um, meat-eating market to be able to eat all of that meat. It has to be an export market, just like their milk, you know, 95% of their milk's exported. Well, you know, it's probably up there something with the beef market as well. So they just don't have enough people in New Zealand to eat that amount of dairy beef that would be, you know, for sale. So we have to develop, and, and we're the same in Australia, you know, we have to develop a market for this product. And, and you know, I've been trying to do this personally, and, and it's it's not easy, you know. That is Kirsty Keatley, a dairy farmer in Victoria, speaking to Jane McNaughton, what to do with the bobby calves. It's an interesting one. Australia Dairy Farmers, the association there, says it's got a goal to end the on-farm killing of bobby calves by 2035. And that according to a 2022 Dairy Australia survey, only 1% of healthy dairy calves were euthanised at birth on farms, down from 2% in the previous survey. It is 17 past one here on the Country Hour. Quickly to some resources news. The company, Energy Resources of Australia, uh, which is in charge of cleaning up the Ranger uranium mine out near Jabiru, that company has a new chairman. Dan Fitzgerald joins me in the studio. Dan, who is the new head of ERA? 
Uh, Rick Dennis is the new independent non-executive chair. Uh, he only joined the company back in November last year. Um, and the reason he's got independent in his title means that he doesn't work for Rio Tinto, which is the majority shareholder of ERA. There's other people on the ERA board who um, have a, a, an association with Rio Tinto. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Rick Dennis, he replaces Justin Carey, who is interim chair. Uh, Justin Carey will remain on the board as a non-executive director. There's, of course, been quite a shake-up in ERA's board over the last four or five months after the three of those independent directors resigned uh, following a dispute over the funding for the rehab of Ranger. Um, and while you were gone, Matt, uh, one of the people filling those positions was Ken White, the former wow. uh, Minister for Indigenous Australians in the Morrison government. He joined the board in December. Um, ERA, of course, is still working on a long-term funding plan for the rehab of Ranger. So Rick Dennis has a, a big job ahead of him. Uh, there's been some serious cost and time blowouts in relation to rehabilitation of Ranger. Okay, thank you for the update, Dan. As we go to air this afternoon, shares in ERA are down by 2%. We are off to check out an invention for the buffalo industry next. It's been made right here in the Northern Territory. It aims to make the whole process safer. Let's go and check it out after this tune by Chris Matthews. Can't buy it back. That is Chris Matthews from the Kimberley. You are tuned into the Country Hour on the ABC. Now, handling wild buffalo that have just been caught It can be a very dangerous job. You try putting an ear tag or cutting the horns of a freshly caught buffalo. Tough job, dangerous job. So the NT Buffalo Industry Council has been working to create a buffalo processor that aims to make dealing with these animals a lot safer. Dan Fitzgerald went to check out the prototype with Michael Swart. Well, yeah, Dan, it's going to be hard to explain, but I suppose we can. I mean, we've built... A buffalo processor and it's based on using an excavator and it's basically an attachment where normally a bucket would be there we've we've put an implement which is a grab and specifically designed for uh, grabbing buffalo horns so how does it all work what does it do well okay um, you don't need to put the animal up a race it, it can come up a full width um, race sort of thing like a vehicle width and then a person in the excavator will bring this attachment over the top and it's like two two forks I suppose and that'll come over the horn and then and that's just a matter of pushing buttons in the cab of the excavator and then by pushing two buttons you can narrow it or widen out the the um, processor and then another two buttons will lock the horn into the processor and then once you've done that, the animal can't move because the machine's 13 tonne or you can use an 8 tonner. And then, yes, yeah, you can do whatever you like. You can work the front end, the back end. There's no, there's no way you can hurt your hands or get horned or anything like that. It's, yeah, very safe. So this locks a buffalo's head in place and it allows you to, say, cut off its horns without uh, it shaking its head around and endangering somebody who's doing that work? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, um, we've always had to trim buffalo horns for live export and now we also have to trim them for the meat work. So now, we've, you know, we're starting a, a process here where we can do that and neither the animal or the operator gets hurt and, and a lot less stress on the animal. Uh, and how long has this been in development? Uh, well, I think the idea has been in people's heads for a few years. <laughs> I mean, we 
we we've built it in conjunction like say NT Bick is the um, project manager and, and ourselves and Walner Station and and Walner already had one which is a bit different and um, so yeah probably 18 months I suppose yeah or a little bit longer but it's it's taken a while to bring it all together and you've given it a trial run out at Walner Station how did that go yeah, it went extremely well. We're 100% happy with um, its ability to hold the animals and, and um, where you could get to it, and, and the yard worked really well with it. Still a little bit slow to um, latch on to the animals, so we need to, to quicken that up, and we'll do a few mods, and then when the season kicks off, we'll, um, we'll have another crack. How quick do you think you need it to be? I'd like to be processing an animal every minute or one to two minutes if we can do it every two minutes you know we can we can do it a hundred easy in the morning you know while it's still cool or with a bit of water a bit longer that was the one thing we did find with what we um, trialled there was no minimal stress that there was no heat and and we were doing it you know like only a couple of weeks ago so it was a very hot time of the year but it worked well. It's a big piece of equipment. It's got some thick steel in it. It's got some hydraulics. It's not going to come cheap. Uh, do you think it'll be worthwhile for, for Buffalo producers to fork out the money for it? Yeah, yeah, definitely, absolutely. I reckon it'll be, it'll probably be less than getting a bull catcher with a bionic arm. You know, I think it, in, in production it, it should come down a hell of a lot more than what, what this has taken or what this has cost us. But, I mean, that's part of the project is to have the design available to anybody who wants it. Yeah, no, I I would highly recommend it, regardless of the cost. I mean, like, you can buy a a top-of-the-range crush for 40, 50 grand, but you still got to get the animal into the crush. Here, I think it'll be less than, you know, considerably less than that, and um, this goes to the animal. You've been working with buffalo for for many, many years. Uh, How dangerous can it be uh, when you're trying to cut a buffalo's horns off? Well, it's it's either cutting the horns or putting an ear tag in them. Um, Yeah, extremely, because when you've got them in a crush and you're trying to get that ear, they're they're also trying to hook you, you know, like it's a matter of then putting a rope on the nose and pulling it one way or a horn one way. And, um, yeah, it's when a lot of people do get injured handling buffalo and um, we hope to take this away by with this implement, 100%. Have you had any, any injuries of your own? Yeah, I've spent a week in hospital with a horn up the leg and a few squashed fingers and whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. So hopefully this will uh, do away with that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will. Yeah, yeah, nah, uh, anybody, yeah, this will be safe as a... So with a few modifications, when do you hope um, other people might be able to get their hands on a machine like this? I would hope that, you know, when the season first opens up, we can do our first trial runs. And so, you know, say may April, May, and then... Um, we've just got a there may be one more modification i'm not sure but yeah i would i would hope by mid to you know sort of towards probably latter half of the season i suppose yeah we should do our final report and have a plan where people can um go for it 
Is it? Alrighty. Well, we look forward to hearing about how it goes. Thanks for having a chat with the Country Hour. No worries. Thank you very much. Yeah, big thanks to Michael Swart, Vice President of the NT Buffalo Industry Council. And Dan's got some pictures of this prototype in action, which we'll put up on our website later on this afternoon. It is time to head to the sale yards with all the latest prices out of Dublin. Here is John Traeger. Good afternoon. Quality was again extremely mixed as agents offered 130 live weight and open auction cattle. Competition was generally good with feeders more active on suitable cattle. Yearling steers sold to 450 cents as yearling heifers ranged from 332 to 402 cents. Grown steers ranged from 306 to 396 with grown heifers selling from 292 to 358 cents reflecting the wide variation in type and condition on offer. Cows of mostly heavier weights sold from 286 to 300 cents, and young bulls sold from 140 to a top of 342 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger at the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thank you very much, John. I've got a question here from Schmick in Wallagi saying, are our northern rivers looking good for a good runoff this year? I put that question to Tales from the Tinny Schmick, and they said, more. We need more rain. More rain for a great runoff, so fingers crossed. That's all we've got time for on the Country Hour. Keep it rural.